Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hello and welcome to Codish. Uh, I'm Chris Castle, a developer advocate at Salesforce who works on Heroku. And today we're going to talk about two-factor authentication and Salesforce Authenticator. But don't worry, we're not trying to sell you Salesforce Authenticator or something like that. We're going to talk about its path from startup to Salesforce acquisition um, and then some of the technical details about uh, how Salesforce Authenticator uh, two-factor authentication tool works. Uh, but first, let me introduce our guest. We have Evan Grimm, software architect in Salesforce Engineering. Welcome, Evan. Uh, did I get your title right there? Uh, can you and can you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I am a, now a software architect at Salesforce after the acquisition, um, and I came through this or came to this. Um, it all started as a class project in grad school, where we got a typically vague prompt for a semester-long project of do something with mobile and location and cloud. And um, I think I was trying to log into the cloud compute platform and was using strong authentication and thinking, hey, I wonder if we can put all these things together and make the experience better. And so I started working on it as a class project and just couldn't put it down and then ended up partnering up with a more business-minded friend of mine who said, yeah, we should chase this because there's something there. So before we jump into uh, formerly Tufer, now Salesforce Authenticator, can you share uh, or tell us what what is two-factor authentication and why is it important uh, in this day and age of our with our use of technology? Uh, most people have, uh, by this point have had at least some interaction with this very typically through their banks, but the idea is to try to allow websites or various online properties to have more confidence that the person on the other end of a transaction is actually you. Uh, historically, it's just been a password between uh, anyone online and what you want to protect with a password. And more and more, that's that's kind of falling down. And so the industries across all sorts of, whether it's banking, education, or Facebook, social networks, Heroku, um, or Salesforce, those kind of things are looking for ways to increase the confidence and uh, they, it breaks down into three categories, typically. Uh, something you know, that's the traditional password-based. Something you have, uh, that's where Salesforce Authenticator comes in. And then something you are, which is biometrics. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind multi-factor authentication is to have something that crosses between at least two of those ca categories. All three is even better, which now that mobile phones have biometric capabilities like Face ID or Touch ID, we're getting into the realm where we can do all three. Uh, the, the trick is that most people end up not liking it because it's getting in the way of you accessing mm -hmm. the things you want to access online. And it's, it's an annoying thing to have to do every time you log in. It really improves your security stance because now someone can't just troll long lists of usernames and passwords and try them on different accounts and get in because they have to have this additional factor to let you in. So the idea, uh, a lot of what Tufer was focused on was trying to find a way to find that balance between security and usability. Mm, um, yeah. And what we did was, uh, as I said, the, the prompt was kind of vague, but it said do something with location. 
The idea mm -hmm. was that Twofer would learn your typical usage behavior. And instead of you having to pull your phone out and hit an allow button, it would say, hey, it's the same person from the same browser. They're, in, they're at home. It's the same time of day. All of this kind of context information to be right. smart about. I'll hit that allow button for you. Yep. So that you got a, this nice experience, and, and it's I, I still use it uh, <laughs> on a daily basis, and it makes me smile. It's like, yep, I just did strong authentication, but I didn't have to pull something out of my pocket. I didn't have to push uh, a button on a USB key or you know touch a, a biometric endpoint. It basically the system right. said, "Does this look typical? Cool, let them in." And yeah. then the idea is, would be to only bug the actual person that's trying to get in if something's unusual or important. That's cool. That's interesting. I remember, uh, maybe I'm dating myself, but 15 years ago, um, a little bit more, maybe starting to kind of my first job. Uh, and I remember being given this, uh, I think it was like an RSA token that was this like little kind of, I don't know, couple inch long plastic thing that they said to put on my keychain, And it, it had yep. a LCD, yeah, LCD, like, you know, monochrome LCD screen that just had a six character numeric code on it that kind of cycled through. Um, and I was always like, ah, I'd have to carry this like big bulky thing around. It's like on my keychain, And then, you know, when I need to use it because my keys are bulky and I like left them on a table somewhere in my front table. Um, so I have to get up and go get them. You're not alone. I mean, and that, <laughs> that technology has literally been around in one form or another since the seventies. Yeah. And with, the advent of smartphones, it really did need another look and say, how can we bring additional capabilities into this that you're not having to carry around? And the thing is like people that had to access multiple different things would have to carry around one of those tokens oh, for yeah. each. Yep. And so a smartphone definitely made that a, a better idea for innovating there. I often hear from um, friends that work in security, they say often that like, there's always this trade off between security and usability. Yeah. Um, and it seems like one of the things that you were trying to approach was like, breaking down that, that being a, a pure trade off and like, see how we can maintain some, th the same level of security, but make it more usable. Absolutely. And it, it when explaining what I did to friends and family and potential investors, it uh, often was put into the bin of security, mm -hmm. but it very much was trying to straddle the usability, the design thinking the yeah. uh, as well. And that was the important distinction of what we were doing. And it, it really was just a reflection of my internal struggle between paranoia and laziness. Of, <laughs> yeah. I, I was paranoid that there were so many things online that if someone just knew my username and password, they could get in. Uh, but I also did not want to have to, I didn't want to be slowed down to try to get them. I just wanted to thwart anyone who wasn't me from getting into it. And so yeah. it definitely was pulling that thread that, that I just couldn't put down. <laughs> Why yep. it wasn't just a semester long project. It was like, oh, I want this. <laughs> I yeah. want this everywhere. One of the reasons why uh, I joined Heroku was because of, of uh, Heroku's kind of focus on improving usability, making making the tools we use every day easier to easier to use. Um, so, what about the the original name of the the tool or the company was Tufer? Is that that correct? Um, and then somehow Salesforce found you. Yes. So the 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 name, uh, just as a quick note, comes from the. But we talked about multi-factor authentication. Sometimes it's known as two-factor authentication. Um, and naming things is is something that I, <laughs> is hard. But yeah. if you just kind of say two-factor authentication really quickly, you sort of get twofer. Yep. Um, and so that's where the name came from. 
and we were were ta- we had built out the uh, the API behind um, to to enable this. That we'd built out the the mobile front ends. Uh, we'd gotten venture funding, and we're trying to go to market. And we're mm-hmm. out talking to people. And Salesforce is for well, I think from its inception, uh, it's one of its number one values, if not the the number one throughout that whole period was trust. And yep. so they were a logical person to go to and try to sell to for. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't involved. It was more on the business side. I was leading the engineering team. But uh, the feedback I got back from our sales team and CEO was, yeah, we were talking to them. They really loved the idea. They, they basically just said, I don't think we're ever going to buy this as a product, but we might buy the company. <laughs> and the CEO was like, yes, tell me more. Let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about that. <laughs> okay, um, okay. And it, it really was from executive leadership within Salesforce who saw something that they wanted to integrate deep into the DNA of their login stack, uh, yeah. as opposed to just being a third third party product. They wanted to own it and provide it to all of the Salesforce customers. It's not something we charge for. Yeah. Uh, it, it is just built in because we, we, in general, try not to charge people to be more secure, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> which is a good, a good uh, principle from companies to, to live by. And uh, I definitely cringe sometimes because in, in a world where companies are trying to offer what they have to people that are secure innovations, often I'll see services that it's a free, but if you want to turn on strong authentication, you have to pay more. Yeah, and that right. makes me cringe. It's like, ah, you're, <laughs> you're basically saying... Um, What's the value is if if we secure our product, and I I understand it because it's it's hard to come up with a business model um, that can actually reach people, and Mm -hmm. so that's a way to differentiate your enterprise customers from from just people who want to use it on a daily basis. But and I'm biased because I've spent so long working in the authentication space, but I see that and it makes me just cringe. It's like, oh, I don't want that to be what differentiates. Uh, right. your commercial customers from your normal customers because we want everyone to be using strong authentication. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like SSL TLS certificates, which mm-hmm. before Let's Encrypt, right, used to cost lots of money and 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 even be more complex to implement and figure out, um, get working on your website. But now it's becoming the default or the expected norm that every website is served over HTTPS. Yeah, and that was so painful for so long yeah. that the Let's Encrypt experience now just seems like magic. Yeah, it's like how could it be this simple? And it's through a lot of hard work from from those teams to to yeah. build something that really does take the difficulty out of something that everybody should be doing. Yeah, yeah, totally. We use Heroku uses them for uh, uh, ACM, which is automated certificate management. Um, and I actually just got an email from Let's Encrypt yesterday saying we are one billion in just wow. four years. Um, they've issued 1 billion TLS certificates to, to do that. So it's pretty cool. The, the reality is like, like sometimes adding additional security does cost more money to, mm-hmm. to the business um, in, in people cost or implementation or R&D costs. But more and more, it's, it's kind of getting easier in, in many different ways. I guess maybe it's also getting more important. So, so it's kind of just it's becoming more expected. Uh, like if I were to like, you know, log into to my bank or something like that, if they see that I'm somewhere else um, or if they see that I'm coming from a different browser, they'll send me an email and say, hey, please click on this this link first before you uh, before we'll let you in. We just want to make sure it's actually you. And sometimes they use SMS. And I know there's like we could probably go down a whole like rabbit hole of uh, what's the problem with SMS and 2FA. Um, 
But in the interest of of time, I'm curious to hear more about the kind of the, the, the technical path of of Salesforce Authenticator. Um, so you were you were running on Google Cloud, um, and it and you said that after that acquisition, you decided to move to Heroku. So curious about um, you know Google Cloud is great has has lots of cool features and and a lot more kind of flexibility and power maybe than Heroku but um like what what prompted that decision for you to move Salesforce Authenticator from Google Cloud to to Heroku yeah i want to make sure i say up front in case i forget to say it but we were really happy on the Google Cloud platform the when we got acquired we did make the decision of, of basically rebranding and starting fresh with our api and so it, it was a logical time to evaluate architectural changes we wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And that was what drove us to reevaluate our platform as well, because we had been using, so this was very early on, it was before GCP was even an initialism, um, I mm-hmm. think. It was basically just App Engine backed yeah. up by <laughs> Bigtable. Yeah. And so we were using that. And it was great in a lot of ways because we weren't having to worry about managing our data store, uh, a lot of the things that you get with Heroku, but it was a, a NoSQL database mm-hmm. that had eventual consistency. And that often that became our our go-to, well, what what's this bug? <laughs> you know, like mm, was it eventual okay. consistency? Yeah. Um, and so that's a <laughs> that's an ANSI pattern in an engineering org of allowing for you to have sort of a catch-all explanation for any bug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, right. That normally so, means we should think about fixing the root cause. Yes, exactly. And so this was an opportunity to do that. And we we looked at the scale of uh, what we needed to serve. And it was clear that we didn't have to be on an eventually consistent data store. And I think looking back at de- making decisions about how it was architected originally, if I g- had advice to give to others, it would be you don't necessarily have to build for that kind of scale from the beginning. Uh, you can scale very far on a Heroku Postgres instance. It is, those things are beasts, uh, and they can they can really serve a lot of the needs. And even projecting forward with adoption that's been uh, growing year over year significantly, and projecting pretty far down the road, we don't see a problem with what we're trying to do within a SQL mm-hmm. store. And yep. so at that point, it became, okay. And then you combine that with the practicality of we're being acquired by Salesforce and yeah. Heroku is a Salesforce company. If I look at all the options out there that a Salesforce developer has on what they want to build on something internally, hands down, it's Heroku. That's what I want to build on. Mm-hmm. It just takes care of so many things that allow us to focus on the app we're trying to build as opposed yeah. to you know, managing a data store. It, it is just... It's magical. I think it saves us easily two or three engineers over if we were trying to do this on AWS ourselves or on any of the first party data centers that Salesforce has. Yep. And it is solid. And so much of the site reliability stuff falls on Heroku. We'll we'll have an incident from time to time uh, that, that is you know an AWS instance that our Postgres database was running on uh, will go down. But by the time we're paged or notified by it, it's already resolved yep. itself because it was yep. on the other side of the fence and Heroku takes care of that for us. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a, I cannot overstate how beautiful that is, how much that has enabled us to quickly, well, do something like replatform from Google Cloud to Heroku. 
we had yeah. a an app that was built. It's a match made in heaven for Heroku, 12-factor yeah. act um, philosophy. Um, and it was just super easy to take the code we had, but we were using an ORM that could do both NoSQL and SQL-based. And yep. so since we weren't trying to migrate that data, it was super simple. We just swapped out the back end and started running. Yeah, so I was going to ask, actually, can you lay out a little bit of um, the architecture of Salesforce Authenticator or what are the, what are the pieces you use um, behind the scenes to, to run it? Well, as I was saying, it really does fit in well with what a typical Heroku app would look like. We've got a 12-factor uh, app. Yeah, a 12-factor app. We've got the runtime uh, sitting in front that we can scale on dynos, connecting to Postgres for persistence. We've, we're using Heroku Redis as well for caching and just various kind of quick store, doesn't need to be persisted uh, data. Yep. And underneath the covers, it's a Django app. It's using mm-hmm. Django ORM. Uh, so we're using the, the Python build pack. Yep. Um, and it, it, it looks a lot like if you just started with a Heroku tutorial on run it, run Django on Heroku, that, like, that's yeah. what it looks like, but it has grown and scaled with very little, um, engineering resources needing to be devoted to the things that are just taken care of by Heroku. Right. And then there's, uh, I, so is it, is it correct to say there's a, there's an API then that is used by the, the mobile app that I use every day when I'm doing, doing 2FA into Salesforce? Yes, exactly. So we do have, it's a fairly small team and acquisition. We were six engineers. We've grown a bit over the, the years since we were acquired. Uh, and so that, that team has people that can play in a lot of different arenas, uh, mm-hmm. which they like to do. So we've yeah. got Android expertise. That's Java and Kotlin. We've got uh, iOS expertise. That's mm-hmm. Objective-C and more and more Swift. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the Python API that is running in Heroku backs all that up. So that yep. when you log into Salesforce uh, Salesforce org and you've, your admins have, have turned on Salesforce Authenticator for that org, it, there's an API call made by the Salesforce tech stack that says, hey, I want to know if this is actually that end user. It reaches yep. out to your phone. You hit allow. That gets back to them. Uh, you can turn on the contextual stuff that I was talking about where it'll learn your yep. typical usage. And then it, a strong auth looks like you just provide a password. There's a moment where it checks with our back end, and then you're in. Salesforce Authenticator was my first experience with a, a push notification, uh, 2FA or multi-factor authentication service or tool. So even that alone is like a step up from, yeah. say, like having to unlock my phone, uh, open an app, or find the app, open the app, um, kind of like scroll through the all the other services I have 2FA set up with, find the number, hopefully read it correctly, type it into the browser, tap approve it's super simple so yeah and we're certainly not the only ones doing the push authentication but it is surprisingly rare for you to have us that even as an option on a service that you're logging into and so we're Mm -hmm. definitely looking to increase the (laughs) surface area uh, and evangelize just for what strong authentication can be Uh, like i said we're not the only ones that do the push authentication but that experience is such light years ahead of that rsa dongle that has the code (laughs) I mean, because you're being proactively, like your phone buzzes, you don't even have to unlock it. You just tap the notification. Your phone does a biometric check before it shows you the details even, and then you get an approve button and then you go on. And that, I mean, it's a wonderful confluence of technology that allows the the usability to really make a a, quite the leapfrog of what we we had before all of those technologies could come together. 
earlier we we had talked about this concept of uh, I, I mean maybe it's like kind of overblown in tech circles these days, but like the hashtag boring tech, mm-hmm. um, like don't don't over plan or don't like uh, over plan for capacity or or scale or things like that before you know you actually will need it because that generates lots of other things you have to worry about, things you have to implement, and then things you have to maintain going forward if you don't actually uh, have a need for that scale. It's wasted time and effort. So yeah, what were some examples, I guess, of like um, how you have approached not over planning or kind of planning enough and implementing enough to make the app work, but not planning for huge amounts of scale before you actually need it? Yeah, so I think it does come down to just keep it simple you know it's easy to chase the new shiny like you said it's it's becoming cliche of of that being the advice but it it is um there's a lot of promise behind some of those technologies but often you do it's the hype curve you get in you you get really excited about it and then you get to the practicalities of okay well there are some trade-offs here Um, and it may appear to solve your problems up front but there's a reason some of those other technologies have stuck around for a while. It's because they're rock solid at what they do. Yeah. Um, and I think that often it's hard as humans to evaluate all of the, like you see one benefit, but it's hard to really evaluate what trade-offs come with that. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to, if you're working with one technology to <laughs> quickly find what those uh, downsides are. And so the technologies that have been around for a while have had more momentum of gripes about what those right. may be. And I think they get, yeah, they're more like they're more battle tested maybe. Yeah. But the truth of it is like, I don't want to think about my data store more than I have to. Like yeah. I want to think about the schema. I don't yeah. want to think about managing that. I just want to figure out how to persist that data and make sure that it's going to be there when I need it and mm-hmm. that it's going to be consistent when I want to, to, to access it. Right. Uh, and I think there are applications, absolutely, there are applications that cannot scale in a single SQL database. But there mm-hmm. are a lot of applications that can, particularly if you're talking about a microservice yeah. that d- is doing one thing and doing it well. Yeah. It yeah. really, really evaluate, well, at what point will this break down uh, using something that's more battle-tested? And I think it is important to plan ahead about, okay, well, what happens when we do reach the end of scalability on this? Am I going to move to a sharding strategy? Uh, right. Do I have a path where I can move to a, a NoSQL data store? But that's that's more future planning than like just hop on it from day one. Yeah, you were talking about Postgres earlier. And yes, for sure, Heroku Postgres is great. But I also think that like uh, the Postgres, the open source project has mm. just like improved so much over the past five, seven, eight years, maybe, maybe 10 years. Um, it seems to be on this, this like breakneck pace actually breakneck, but also like measured, like it's very high quality, everything that gets, that gets shipped from the, the Postgres or those that are contributing to the Postgres open source project. In my experience, it is an exemplary project of what open source can do and just boggles the mind. I mean, how have they managed to do what they've done it's really amazing and heroku seemed to have gotten on the bandwagon with postgres very early yeah it's kind of like a silent i mean the project itself is like this silent freight train it just keeps <laughs> moving and it does well and it yeah. does it does what you ask it to do and it doesn't get a lot of press it seems like or a lot of like you know it's not in lights a lot but mm-hmm. it's um yeah it does does its job and 
does it well. One of my favorite things, because we were users of Heroku before we were acquired for mm -hmm. like our dev portal was on, on Heroku. And one of the things that I really enjoyed as part of the acquisition was getting to see, put faces to yeah. um, the people behind the stuff we'd been using yep. and to talk to Heroku's department of data and mm -hmm. have them kind of lay out the scale at which they are operating Postgres databases, which just kind of boggled my mind. I, yeah, pretty sure they they stand alone in the scale of of operating the, both the count and size and and just uh, resiliency availability. It, it, I was impressed with Heroku before, and that just that only made me more impressed. Uh, yeah, it's been pretty it's been pretty amazing. I'm continuously shocked by how few people can do so much, both mm -hmm. both in in new R and D and also in in maintaining uh, maintaining yeah. and operating the service. Yeah, and they've they've really embraced the automation, and yeah, you know, it it's not something that that uh, people should be hands on with on a day to day basis. Like, figure out how the system's gonna, what could happen to the system, and and what the reaction to it be should be, and then automate it. And they yep. they've really made it an art and a science out of that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That was you know, Heroku is also one of my first um, exposures to like. The engineers who build the software also operate the service in, in you know, like pre-2010 maybe and even even earlier than that, like when I started getting into, into software development, the standard was that there were software engineers and then there was operations people and the software engineers kind of like built the stuff and then they like threw it over the fence and the ops people mm -hmm. ran it on the servers. And I don't know if it was because of that, but but it, when, you, when you have that setup, which is how Heroku runs all of its services, um, you know, when the, when the the software engineer who wrote the code is getting paged at two a.m., that's like pretty pretty good motivation to <laughs> the next day or the next week or whatever to fix the issue or automate the response to whatever whatever that issue was. And so uh, that has been kind of always part of the the engineering culture of Heroku, which is pretty. It was cool for me to learn to see that and learn it and kind of continue it, I guess, or, or become part of it. So what is, uh, as much as you can, can share, like what's, what's next for Salesforce Authenticator, whether it's maybe, you know, uh, there's those two competing forces. It's like increasing security and trust or maintaining that while also improving usability. We're really focused on adoption mm -hmm. uh, and we're getting, which I love, we're getting a lot of executive alignment around for Salesforce products, we need to be pushing strong authentication. We should be targeting 100% adoption, which mm. if you know anything about typical adoption of strong authentication technologies, particularly <laughs> things like this, yeah. we'll put it this way. The people that run it are thrilled if they get in the double digit percent wise yeah. adoption of it. Right. And so it is great to have executive leadership saying, no, we want to push this well beyond that. And right. our, our goal is going to be 100%. Uh, and to try to figure out how we're going to do that. And this is for Salesforce customers, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. corporations such as Salesforce internally can say, you know, it's required for you to use 2FA. But, you know, for instance, if I'm a Salesforce customer, I have the option to use multi-factor authentication or not when I log in. Is that, yeah. that's correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And and so obviously all Salesforce employees long ago uh, were forced to start using Salesforce Authenticator, right. which is its own kind of cool thing is to work on a project that all of your 
peers use every day, yeah. which can cut both ways. <laughs> it's like, um, oh, you're the one that's doing this thing that I don't like. You, you definitely get good feedback when everyone in the company is dogfooding it. Right. Uh, but yes, we want to take this to our customers and get them to drive for their employees that are using our products, that mm-hmm. they're using strong auth for all their logins. And the strategy we're taking for that is, so historically, we've just been the API and the apps. And as Salesforce continues to grow through acquisitions or through new stacks, there are all these different verticals who are at different stages of adoption of strong authentication or using Mm -hmm. different technologies. And so we're trying to bring that together as a more global, globally run service. Yeah. And to aid in the adoption throughout our, all of our tech stacks, we, we, it became clear that we don't want to ask all of them. So we've got Marketing Cloud, we've got uh, Commerce Cloud, we've got Crux, Tableau's joining us. There's all, all these different uh, tech stacks. We don't want each of them to have to build UI around it. Mm-hmm. And so we are, uh, and we did a little bit of this back because we had the same sort of barriers to adoption back in the startup days. Yeah. Uh, but we're returning to it of actually yeah. putting a front end that anyone who wants to use this can use that will just redirect through us. They tell us who the user is, we'll manage both enrolling and doing the verification uh, and then kick them back out to the, where they're coming from. And so that's what we're working on. The interesting thing about that is it is a different muscle to flex for us because the API we were running could get away with running in a single region because pretty much everything we were doing operates at the human time scale. Mm-hmm. So if I'm sending a message out to a phone and they have to reply, it doesn't matter if that it doesn't matter all that much if there, if that has a longer travel time because I'm in Sydney connecting right. to uh, a Heroku region back in in North America. Yeah. But once we're moving into the UI, it's clear, okay, we're going to have to start doing some multi-region stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're exploring that. Heroku for a while has been in multi-regions, but we had been focused pretty much on a single one. Mm-hmm. And so now with putting the UI in front, we've got to be fast everywhere. And so we're splitting off a front end and running it uh, geographically distributed throughout the world. And that's that's a new thing to operate an app, a, a, yeah. what looks like one app in multiple regions. Right. That brings up, seems like it bring it would bring up lots of um, the questions of eventual consistency again. Yes. Yes. And so <laughs> I, earlier I was all about, no, you can do it with just <laughs> one database. Yep. Uh, but now that we're actually in the, uh, in the position where we've got to be quick everywhere, we are seeing, okay, we're going to have multiple databases. How do we do that in a way that is quick, that doesn't suffer from eventual consistency? And, and it's been a, a real... I'd say fun engineering challenge mm-hmm. to come up with uh, disaster response types of scenarios. Okay. And then testing those out like, okay, what happens if our Virginia based space just goes away yep. and how can we keep the service up and running? And to, to some extent there's the, Heroku has been helpful. Uh, some of the stuff that Heroku has like cross region followers uh, database that we could just switch over to a different database, but we're also starting to have to realize, okay, we want the we want data locality to be close to those that are using it. So it'd be yep. good to move some some of the data we need for quick responses to Sydney. Yeah, uh, but also do it in a way that if we lose Sydney, that things keep going. And so, yeah, right. it's a whole new world. Uh, it adds a lot of comp- complexity. There's some things that we'd love to see Heroku do to help us with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's going to be a, a fun process <laughs> to push this out. 
Yeah, that sounds cool. Well, and, and luckily you have semi easy access to Heroku product managers and engineers to to chat about not only the best way to do this stuff, but also share your your requests of Yes, well. and that that is great. And the the good thing is in talking to the, the product ownership, we're not the only ones that are interested yeah. in this. So it's definitely on their radar. Yeah. Uh, but it is like I said, being able to dog food something in a company helps deliver things that any customer would be interested in. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, joining us on Codish, Evan. I hope your continued use of Heroku is is good and uh, uh, excited to see where Salesforce Authenticator kind of kind of goes in the future. So, um, yeah, thanks for sharing your story with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.